0: Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout-out to another podcast. Hey there, my name is Andy, host of the History of Africa podcast. If you like learning about the history of the Asia-Pacific, I bet you'd also like learning about the history of the African continent. Our current season is focused on ancient Egypt. If that sounds appealing to you, come check out the History of Africa podcast here on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. Back to you, Craig. You
1: are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube.
0: Hello again. Welcome to the Pacific War Channel. The channel will recover the Asia-Pacific War of 1937 to 1945 and all the major events that led up to it. And I am not going to call this a podcast anymore because it's silly. Since I put all of my episodes on the podcast format on Podbean, if you don't get it there, you can also find it on Apple or on Google Podcasts. This is—we're going to call it a discussion. We'll see what seems fair enough. Yeah, we'll see what it what it involves into at some point. But uh, calling it a podcast has been kind of silly because then what are the other episodes on my site? So, anyways, uh, this one is still going to reflect the material from the YouTube channel. So. This week it has been the first Opium War, which was also the first time I made a 45 minute long episode. So poor Justin over here had to watch the whole thing. You know what? Not just poor me, poor the
1: rest of you. But uh, it is a very beefed up topic and required a lot of details. And for those of you that got lost a little bit in the names and dates, you're not alone. Don't worry but uh you know once once you cover this it's a good starting ground to really understand what these two countries went through and where they're going in the future with this conflict so
0: which uh actually to be honest china went through probably some of the worst conflict during this century and this was just the beginning i mean there was rebellions at the that were occurring at the same time, but after this event it gets so much more worse because there is of course a second Opium War, also known as the Arrow War. Simultaneously, while the largest rebellion I think in in the history of the world up to that point, the Taiping Rebellion happens in which almost 20 to 30 million Chinese die. So uh, China didn't have a good century, uh, 1800s to the 1900s, and uh, it gets worse and worse for them, but uh, in historical terms this is where it starts yeah
1: yeah more or less and i mean you know if you were to go off on a tangent you could speculate that the rebellion is one of the reasons why they were kind of getting beat up during the opium war too were they more unified would they have crushed the british it's very possible that's you know for another topic for a whole other day but uh as a side note as promised i started doing a little bit of research on my own into kind of the economics of china and britain uh at the time the war started and a little bit uh, leading up to it. I still have a lot of reading to do, but from what I gathered, it kind of makes sense that uh, Britain wasn't the first country that kind of tried to walk into the Canton port and into the trade doors uh, with China. Uh, The Spanish were there before, the Portuguese, and a few other countries. And it was kind of leading up to China going into a little bit of a recession uh, because they weren't accepting of the free trade going around. And they were still trying to keep their their system, which uh, you know involved more around them
0: being the absolute power. The Canton tributary system. So anybody that was dealing with China would literally be treated as quote unquote barbarians, lesser to the Great Empire of China and the emperor.
1: Exactly, but this leading them to actually slow their own trade down a lot. Yeah. Uh, You know They were still profitable due to the resources they had, but it was starting to go down at quite a rapid pace, which again can't be proven, but is leading me to think that's one of the reasons why they took so long in directly addressing the opium crisis in China, uh, because they knew that if they abolished the opium completely, that would destroy their trade relations with England, because England didn't have any silver anymore, or Britain, sorry, uh, was va- was quickly running out of silver, which China was hoarding, and the opium was their only means of trading for tea. But tea was one of China's, if not the biggest export back then. So if they're deciding to ruin all their exports, it would have put them in a very very tight spot. Which is one of the reasons why it might have caused tensions in the beginning, because they they took their time and beat around the bush, trying to trying to sort of worm their way around it. So. That's, that's where I got so far. I still got some more reading and research to do, see if I can come up with some new opinions or ideas. But uh, I'm kind of thinking that's part of what helped start all of this too. It's like, like we said in the last episode, a lot of it is always money driven. So.
0: Almost, I said in the last episode, a lot of people, they attribute World War II mostly to ideology, particularly on the part of the Nazi government. But honestly, if you were to just take World War II or any other major war that's happened in all of human history and crunch the numbers, it comes down to trade. It comes down to the force of natural resources. Some people end up in a territory with less and need to expand. And sometimes it's, it's a point of survival and wars occur because you have to forcefully take things yeah
1: yeah unfortunately
0: and uh, wars for China are so common and it's I'm not going to delve into it but it's fascinating when you look at the the viewpoint of uh, Chinese scholars particularly or like if you're going way far back in ancient times the way that China has always dealt with war or battle it's quite interesting because they always use you know the foresight of perhaps you're gonna lose the battle now but a thousand years from now you know China will still, remain the empire that it's always been and they've always had this kind of idea that never put everything never put all your eggs in one basket and risk everything just try to always survive you know you saw that with the mongolian invasions they just always wanted to remain there and they thought that you know they'll weather out the storm no matter how long a war will go on it could be like a, you know, a few centuries like the warring states periods but China will always survive and interestingly enough it does to this day yep yeah. all right so let's get into this episode what did you think overall as an episode because i mean you know it's a little different than what i was doing before uh, last time is about 50 minutes i had a 20 minute episode and this was a big 45 and uh, the next one is also going to be a big 45 mind you so what did you what do you think overall
1: well, I mean, uh, it's it's definitely a lot of information to take in, especially for somebody who doesn't come from a history background. <laughs> a lot of names, a lot of dates were thrown around. Very poorly, I might add, for some of the names. Mispronounced. My good old probably. friend over here. Not going to give him too much shit because, in all honesty, I probably wouldn't do much better. But uh, it's, it's a little hard to keep track of the timeline when there's so many new people coming into the equation.
0: A lot. And this one was uh, outstanding.
1: But basically, this is what came down to China it seems really cracking down on the opium trade and trying to get rid of it. After Lin came in and confiscates all of the opium, this is what really kick-started uh, most of the conflict. Because now, all of a sudden, Britain is sitting there with no opium. Which they cannot peddle, which they cannot use that money to buy their tea, you know. So the, their whole backup—bear and bear in mind, this was the backup plan to get their tea—is yeah. uh, now gone, gone awry. And not to mention, you know, as much as it was an illegal trade, you can't complain too much. It was taken from them rather forcefully. It yeah. wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a voluntary concession. So they felt obviously wronged, and they wanted it back. And, you know, looking at some of your comments where uh, it was actually the British merchants, not necessarily the army, that were crying that they needed to be compensated for everything they lost.
0: I I couldn't go into it in this episode, even though my original script was something like 40 pages long. I got it down to 20. And one thing that I was really going to go into, and actually I've had a few comments on the YouTube channel from someone talking about this subject, is the private interest of small merchants at the time who have become absolute tycoons today like Jardin and matheson a company like that its foundation was built in the opium war they got into politics because of the opium war the money they they were making they pushed on parliament members in britain to push the war further and i i forget the name but one of the guys who actually commented on my episode was bringing up there was an american businessman who got involved in this and he made a killing as well it's a foundation of one of the biggest companies that still remains today there's a lot of people who made incredible money like incredible money off the first and particularly the second opium war. And when you think about it, money and politics went hand in hand in this. So, and still yeah, do. You can argue that a select group of people and like let's not just put this only on the British, mind you. There was corrupt Chinese uh, Qing officials at the time who were invested in this as well. A lot of people were making money off this, and they pushed this to happen. And, you know, you see this today with certain wars like in Iraq, for example. It still happens all the time.
1: I mean, again, not something that can be proven. I think it would be pretty fair to say that the Chinese government most likely knew that the opium was coming in. And, again, obviously payments were being made up the ladder. But again, talking about the fact of their economy being where it was, Mm. it wouldn't shock me if, like I said, they kind of slowly turned a blind eye and let some of it come in, up until the time where they realized that it was becoming a a national problem. Um,
0: (laughs) Although, when we say national, it is uh, an odd point. When it comes to this time period, the Qing Dynasty wasn't as um, centralized as you would think. It was still kind of like a warring states period in its own, so... Provinces had a lot more authority than you'd give it, and uh, a place like Gangja, uh, Canton, it was uh, not that the emperor didn't have control over the area, but he didn't know a lot that was going on. The officials that were corrupt probably, you know, they were paying whatever court officials were speaking to the emperor in the first place, so I wouldn't be surprised if the emperor was ignorant towards some of it. Yeah.
1: It's possible. It's possible. But, uh, sorry, what was I going to say? But yeah, these merchants uh sorry the the British merchants that were pushing for the war itself and for conflict, basically looking to get their lost profits back, which uh, again, we're looking at an economically driven conflict
0: and a legal one um the point made by uh, Charles Elliot particularly was that this wasn't just uh, you know materials that were taken, this was British property that was seized, so Uh, In legal terms, you know, if you're looking for a reason to go to war, it was actually not too bad to say that, you know, British property was destroyed. Yeah,
1: Yeah. well, that's part of everybody trying to, I guess, tiptoe around the fact of the whole illegal drug trade that was going on. Yeah,
0: the property was an illicit drug that wasn't supposed to be in China in the first place, so I don't know, it was was clever how they got around that, but yeah. You know, and,
1: you know, getting back to your point of, you know, bending the truth, where you spoke a lot in the episode about... uh, Britain kind of blurring the lines about their casualties and damages that they took during the conflicts themselves.
0: I'm reading uh, some of the literature that I was reading was primary sources from British officers and you read every single battle it seems oh um, there was no casualties a few men got injured or there was one battle in particular forget which one it was but they received some casualties for once, but then there's a side note from the officer that it was actually a misfire in which some barrels of gunpowder that the British had set up beside them had gone off just to make sure that the Chinese didn't, you know, kill a few soldiers and this is this is absurd. Like a lot of people died during the war. It's not like it wasn't the, the turkey shooting fest that you would, you know, think from the British yeah, side. Yeah,
1: I think you guys might be with us on this one that that's a little horseshit if I've ever seen one, but yeah. it's, uh, you know, it kind of leads to the fact that it doesn't matter what conflict you get into in the history of the world, neither side is going to perceive themselves as the bad guy, yeah. but this is one of the first ones where I've seen a country openly go to a go to such lengths to say like, well, we didn't do anything, it was, not they 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 basically abused us, tried to kick us out of their country, took all our shit, and uh, and and then tried to fight us. but don't worry we we wrecked them. it was it was fine.
0: I think in the terms when they were talking in Parliament, there was one thing that caught my eye. It was not a single penny will be spent on reparations for confiscated opium, and we are there to protect british citizen citizens in danger. yeah, <laughs> so yeah.
1: Exactly. It seems a little far-fetched. And Speaking of far-fetched, I did want to ask you, what is the deal with these Chinese cannons? Because it seems to me like th- there's no possible way they could have that problem consistently throughout every conflict and not find some solution to it.
0: It's a little... Is this I, exaggerated? I, or no. What? This is one of the few things that I'd say the primary sources don't exaggerate because the, Brit- the British officers actually, they specifically say what the problem was. Yes, these cannons were outdated, but there's a specific reason. So back in this time, British cannons, you know, they were pivoted on these structures that could move. I mean, this is a podcast, you can't see my hands right now, but they could pivot left to right up and down properly. The problem is most of the Chinese cannons were literally welded into the ground and they could pivot like just up and down. And they were aimed at a direct spot to hit Chinese war junk ships. The British ships coming in were at different elevations than these war junks. So where these cannons were aimed, particularly in the lakes, rivers, or wherever, they weren't aimed anywhere where the British ships would be. And the British ships knew this beforehand, so they would never sail into dangerous areas. And I mean, there's other things like yes the british cannons could shoot further they're more accurate so it, it was uh, it was pretty easy and yeah almost every single every chinese fort on the Yangtze river was just completely obliterated and this would occur by the way in the second opium war sadly enough they didn't modernize their cannons for centuries it's it's interesting how the country that basically came up with the whole thing the idea it was used during the Mongol invasions of Europe, by the way. The Mongolians brought cannons and wrecked a lot of Europeans. The Europeans were terrified; they'd never seen this stuff before. And then they don't modernize them. And the British, you know, like any other Western nation at the time, had much more modern cannons and technology. Won the day, to say the least. Uh, not to mention a lot of these Chinese poor Chinese war junks were. They shouldn't. Even, they should not even be considered useful at the time they uh, they were not maneuverable the british warships uh, it it was like mike tyson fighting in it yeah
1: oh, that's unfortunate for the chinese i mean uh, did they have uh, did they still have quite a numbers advantage back then though or uh, i didn't see too oh. much about the actual uh,
0: it's a size of the
1: military power back then
0: the biggest problem with the chinese the Qing Dynasty's military um It was an unbelievably complicated structure, and I have, there's an episode that will come out weeks from now where I have to talk about this. There's different branches of the uh, Qing Dynasty's military. There's the Eight Banner Army, which, to be honest, it's it's just for show. It's an imperial guard. It's the traditional Manchu army that uh, you know took over and created the Qing Dynasty and the 8 banners refer to the 8 different symbols and there's like 8 groups with their own unique flags but they're kind of like a a fake guard for the Empire. The real army that was made because the 8 banner army was so inefficient at war was the Green Standard Army which was what you would see in a lot of my clips because I was using um, a movie called The Opium War from 1997 almost everyone's dressed in Green Standard Army uniform they were the Standard Army at the time. Later on, actually particularly during the Second Opium War, there's other militias made who were made because of the inefficiency of the Green Standard Army. And this keeps happening, mind you. Uh, it goes right up to the 1900s. They keep changing their armies. They, uh, they weren't outfitted with weapons that were capable of fighting off the British. Their matchlocks were like 17th century. It's, uh, it, was, it was rough. Uh, it was a huge technological gap. And it honestly, it just came down to, for some reason, uh, the Qing government didn't put a lot of money and investments into designing better cannons. You know? mm. So that was tricky.
1: No, because you'd have to think the British are still not fighting on their home soil. No. Y- no. You'd assume they'd have a heavy numbers disadvantage.
0: Oh, the reason why there wasn't... Because you would assume they would get swarmed at the beachhead, right? What happened was uh, the Qing government didn't treat this at all seriously at the beginning. And they never fully, uh, they, they were never in full, full war mode, as you would say. At the end, they had enough troops to bring in. Like 250,000 guys were going to come in from, the center, uh, from central China over to help. But by then, the British were, you know, threatening to go to the, <laughs> the capital and to actually attack really important uh, places. So they quickly resolved it. The Chinese, from the, from the point of view of the Qing dynasty, this wasn't a large-scale war. This is kind of like, okay, we need to stop this right now. Let's just negotiate by the end of it. The emperor was being lied to, mind you. I, I say in the episode, all the court officials are like, oh, everything's going great. You know, we're actually winning these battles. We sank like 20 British warships. They're not doing too well. And then all of a sudden, the emperor is like told, okay, um, they're taking Canton. They have Hong Kong. Oh my God, we don't know what to do. Lin Zexu screwed up. You know, it's all Lin's fault. And yeah, that's what happened.
1: Yeah, which is unfortunate for Lin because... Even though he did, in a sense, fail, it kind of all got pinned on his head. Uh,
0: yeah, um, as a, I really, I, I can't uh, do it merit, because uh, he, he's a revered person to this day. You can see him on money in China and everything. Lin Zexu was um, a viceroy of two provinces prior to this, and he was, like, the only person who actually, like, subdued the opium trade where he was working. He was brought in last minute when, you know, there was an escalation, and He recommended a a hardline stance to confiscate the opium. And he said this to the emperor, and the emperor agreed with him and told him to go forward and do what he did. Lin goes, does this, it causes a war, and then in the end, the emperor blames everything on him. But I mean, like, you went along with what the guy was saying. And poor Lin, you know, he gets shoved up to this lesser position in this, like, kind of rural area. For three years, and his career never came back, and he was known as the guy who caused this devastating war for his uh, for the Qing Dynasty. And then in 1850, the poor guy he dies just before they were gonna bring him back to quell the Taiping Rebellion. So maybe it's a good thing he died before he had to get involved in that. Yeah, maybe it is.
1: I mean, you send a guy to clean up your mess, and, and when then he you does, kinda...
0: yeah, he does exactly what you said he should do and then you blame him so uh, he you know, he took he took the fall for the company you know That's that kind of thing
1: yeah it's unfortunate for him
0: so I wanted to uh, you know cause uh, talking about everything that happened in the episode i like to kind of say the things I didn't get in the episode you know there's like neat little facts I couldn't put in and stuff and I, I made a few points I wanted to mention the idea of uh I mean, because it's a hot topic issue today. This entire war started the Hong Kong legitimacy or illegitimacy that's going on today. So the founding of Hong Kong as we kind of know it today with the British just grabbing it occurred during the first opium war. Which, uh, you know, you probably saw the cheeky bit of economics behind the... How they took it. I I did, and what's funny is, if
1: you were to look at that by today's standards, <laughs> yeah. Gr- granted, it was a lot of illicit drugs that they lost for it, but in this day, uh, real estate and especially uh, such a sought-after trading ground like Hong Kong would have been worth way more than what the British lost. But uh, again, the fact that the uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I forget the name of the British officer who made the deal. Uh, you mentioned it in the episode.
0: The British officer who, who okayed was,
1: the the trade for Hong Kong.
0: Uh, uh, could have been Charles Elliott or it was Palmerston, I forget.
1: Yeah. Anyways, the, 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 the British officer who okayed and kind of sanctioned the deal for Hong Kong, realizing he didn't have the approval from the British government. No. To which they turned around and said, well, it's not nearly enough. Which, in reality, it probably would have been more than enough if they just sat there and reaped the benefits over time.
0: Yeah, but they... Uh, the whole time Parliament was you know, saying, oh, we're not trying to get you know, reimbursed for the confiscated opium. That's not happening. But in reality, that's the only thing they were looking for, was that 20 million tails of silver for the confiscated opium. So when, when he made the deal, it was about 6 million tails of silver or something. It was nowhere near enough. So, of course, the British government's like, no, you need to shake them down for more money.
1: Yeah, but what's funny, and a point you actually mentioned in the episode, which was very, very smart on the Chinese part... Even though, in a sense, they did kind of lose Hong Kong for free because they sold it for $6 million, but then they had to concede $6 million for yeah. the confiscated goods or the destroyed British property, whatever the heck they tried to claim it as. Yeah. But their whole idea was to increase taxes and to crack down on the merchants in Hong Kong, the yeah. Chinese ones, in order to gain their profits back.
0: Yeah. Which was actually very sneaky on their part. It was smart because, you know, the people that, <laughs> the corrupt merchants that were involved in the opium trade, but it was basically them paying for this through those taxes. And yeah, it was, it was, the Chinese won a little battle there, yeah. Yeah. Because the other thing you have to remember is that when the
1: British took control of Hong Kong, obviously the idea was, I don't know how much of it actually happened, but the idea was to increase and flood in trade through there of all types. Uh, which would have meant the area would have got much, much more popular, Uh, basically making more of an income suck for the Chinese, but they don't have to front any of the costs for actually running the place. Now, it it doesn't work as far as a company does nowadays where you have to pay a CEO, but still, if they have to send some of their own officials to oversee places like this, it's, it's time, money, and energy spent, even back then, that they didn't really have to. So rather than that, they were happy to give it to the British, basically, which is what they did. But they were kinda of looking at taking their money back in another way. And at the same time this they were hoping might smooth over relations enough to kind of stop the conflict. Unfortunately, yep. it didn't really.
0: Uh if there is anyone from the audience that is from Hong Kong or knows much about Hong Kong history, I know we are not even touching remote this is a large issue and there's a lot more at stake and to be honest there's a lot more historically that occurs with hong kong like the least for 99 years etc i just i don't think we should get into that because it's it's a hot topic issue and it gets a lot of nations angry at the moment so but yeah so uh, but bringing up you know how it was kind of founded we'll call it, even though i think that's stupid because you know it wasn't founded or anything But uh, it was the start of what would become the Hong Kong issue during World War II. Because as you all probably know, Britain had interests in China during World War II. And that was pretty much the only reason why we saw action there uh, during the Pacific War. And Hong Kong was a huge reason for this. Of course, Singapore and Shanghai as well. But I'd say Hong Kong was probably the most significant. And uh, I bet you the British would have gave it up if they knew what was going to happen later. Uh, and another thing, I, I did touch about this at the end of the episode. It was the, the treaty that occurred after everything was said and done. And the reason why I bring this up is because it's actually so interesting historically, because if you look at the Treaty of Nanking and you look at the Treaty of Versailles, which was the treaty that was signed after World War I, they were both very similar in, you know, they humiliated a nation to the point where that nation had so many grievances, it led to a second war. So the Treaty, the Treaty of Versailles, it was World War II, literally happened because of you know, Adolf Hitler's ideology, and most of it was based off of the unfair treatment during the Treaty of Versailles. For the Treaty of Nanking, literally this led to the second opium war. They did not solve a lot of the issues that were currently going on, and they just bruised the Qing Dynasty to the point where, yeah, of course the Qing Dynasty was going to come back and try and do something. Uh, that's a bad way to put it. Britain and France forced the second opium war, but anyways, yeah. So I thought it was just kind of cool to, you know, make that, you know, mirrored image of how uh, unsatisfactory end to a war can cause another one. And, um, yeah. <laughs> now,
1: as far as treaties go, again, we're getting into speculation here, but is, is there part of us that's sort of assuming that the treaty was signed just to sort of... By time, while each nation sort of made their own plans, or
0: uh, particularly on the Qing side, they, they, they didn't really see this as a full blown war. To be honest, they never, they never really took this too seriously. But um, the signing of the treaty was just to get the British out of their hair. The Qing dynasty, like I said, there was rebellions that were ongoing, and they had more internal conflict than uh, that. Then they could deal with, so they really needed this to be done with, and I think they really believed because there was, uh, there was a member of the court named Qishan. He was kind of the counter to Lin Jeshu. And he said that, you know, you should just appease the British because if the British, if their pockets are heavy, they're not going to go to war. So I guess maybe the emperor thought, uh, appease the British. And if they're making money, at least they're not going to start, you know, attacking and seizing your territory. Mm-hmm. So uh, in a na- naive way, I guess they thought, uh, Yeah, it would stop it.
1: Hmm.
0: And uh, I'm not going to go through what the treaty was. You can watch the episode. Um, I did find one thing interesting before we started this podcast. uh, Not podcast discussion. Uh, It's that there's a revisionist history going on when it comes to this war. And I found this particularly interesting because a lot of historians are speaking about uh, changing kind of the perception of opium during this war. Because a lot of the focal point has always been, you know, uh, Britain was evil morally for doing this, and the opium addiction and what they did to, you know, force economically China to become addicted to it, as well as their citizens, was what really drove this war. And there's a lot of scholars are saying today that, no, this isn't necessarily true, that if you could could take opium out of the equation, this war was inevitable. Um, One scholar, I forget his name, is an American, He wrote a piece trying to, you know, dictate, basically, if they were trading silk, let's say, from India or, you know, cotton textiles from northern England, and for some reason the Qing dynasty was buying it in bulk, uh, this would have led to a war nonetheless, and that's because of the Canton tributary system. If it wasn't, even, even if it wasn't Britain, another country was going to come around to try and open them. I mean, if you look at, you know, Korea or Japan later, these countries got forcefully opened, uh... It was inevitable in a lot of ways. So to look at it through just the prism of the opium trade is actually kind of silly, if you think about it. And I guess there's going to be a lot more literature coming out soon on the, you know, theoretically what would have happened if it was a little different. And, yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting to read. And uh, I wish there might be more literature coming out soon on it.
1: Well, it's definitely an interesting thought. And, I mean, you can always speculate on... Coulda, shoulda, woulda, or yeah. what would have happened if? But the truth is, is again, we're going back to the fact that uh, you know these wars are not fought over morality; they're not fought over ideology; they're fought over economics. And at the end of the day, what economics comes down to more often than not is leverage. Yep. Who has leverage over who? So China had heavy leverage over England because England needed tea. Then England had leverage over China because they had opium. Then China sees the opium, and, it, and it's basically a power struggle. Um, so the argument that if you take opium out of the equation, would the war still have happened? Again, can't be proven right or wrong, but no. you could say that definitely holds ground because if you take opium out of the equation, well, now Great Britain has to find another manner of leveraging the Chinese. Which, Whether yeah. it's specifically an illicit drug, not necessarily.
0: Think, you know, the, but Br- the British government... Their whole idea was this big, you know, industrial revolution with textile work. That was their main export. They did think that their cotton products was going to open up the market. That's what they tried with China. Unfortunately, China, China didn't China, seem
1: to have China didn't care it.
0: about that because it was crap. I mean, you, the silk work in the, in Japan and China was far superior at the time. They're not going to buy this crap. And, you know... The only place the British could dump it was in India, and India was you know, buying more and more of it, but how, how are they going to pay for it? Well, that was the place where they were growing you know, the poppy seeds, so they started to you know, produce more opium, and it was a vicious triangle. Hmm. Yeah.
1: No, but that's where I'm saying the, the, the argument that, well, Britain would have had to found some other way, some other yeah. way of leveraging China, makes perfect sense. Would the conflict have gone about in the same way? Not necessarily, because depending on how the trade went over, uh, a lot of China's objection to the trade in itself was not just destroying their tributary system, but it was the fact that a lot of their states were turning into opium-riddled Yes shit shows, for lack of a better term.
0: Not to go too in-depth into alternate history, but you just imagine a scenario just like uh, Commodore Perry when he went uh, to, with his expedition to open up Japan. It would have been a gun gunboat diplomacy, as you would say. and uh, They would have just shown up and said, hey, China, we would like to do trade, open up some ports and treat us like the sovereign nation that we are. We're not going to abide by your tributary system. And China would say, no. The emperor would be like, no, you're a barbarian. And then the British would start to gun a lot of their cities. Uh, Canton would probably be a target, and it would have it would have been very similar. And, uh, I mean, the Qing Dynasty would have done what almost every nation does when it's under attack by a superior nation like that. It would have just paid them off to leave. But in this case, it was to open up trade, so they wouldn't be able to do that. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure they would open opened up about five different ports or something. Like like you see with the Treaty of Nanking, would have been a similar situation. Yeah.
1: Now, last question I wanted to ask about the treaty, and I don't want to get into too many spoilers if this is going into the next episode, but uh, one of the big talking points of the treaty was to abolish the tributary system. How much did China really abide by that, or
0: did they kind of... Oh, they did. They abided by it because, uh, well, the Canton system, Canton in the name, and I mean, I'm sorry, this is us Westerners saying this. It goes by different names, obviously, in Asia. But uh, the ports were open. Like, about five different ports were opened, And that really defeated the whole purpose of the system because the British could literally go into China now and trade with any individual. And that broke everything because much like Japan during the Sakaku period, they were making a funnel, uh, like a pipeline. So anyone who came in to trade with China would have to go to the same people, which was the Kohong merchants in this case. And that was no longer a thing. So China lost control of the influence of the Western nations coming in. And this wreaks cultural havoc, you know, economic havoc. I mean, uh, they brought in Christianity and that that actually created a, a whole revolution, which killed 20 to 30 million people when a certain Chinese individual said he was the brother of Jesus Christ and led a rebellion against the Qing Dynasty. So, uh, yeah, it got abolished. Um, The Canton system was completely destroyed by this. And, you know, Britain gets all the rap for this, but uh, there was other people involved. Uh, Russia was somewhat involved. The United States of America was kind of looming in the background. They were going to come and do this. Probably the British weren't. And uh, France, of course, had interests in Southeast Asia.
1: And, again, not to go into too many spoilers for the next episodes, but... uh the opium war and the destruction of the Canton system, is that part of kind of what brought about the end of that dynasty in China, or?
0: Yeah, so um, a lot of people would, uh, the term you would use is the nails in a coffin. So there's probably somewhere around 20, maybe even 30 rebellions that happened during this 100-year period, the 1800s to the 1900s, which destroys the Qing uh, dynasty. And uh, the next two episodes are, Two other major things that happened, but you know there was a there was a few Muslim rebellions within China. There was ethnic groups that raised local rebellions. There was the Red Turban Rebellion. <laughs> Sorry, I think that is the uh, the Muslim rebellion that happened. The Taiping Rebellion is quite often the one that's acknowledged to be the one that destroyed the Qing Dynasty. But uh, they're all just kind of notches. Up to the point where the Qing Dynasty collapses, because the emperor never—you you look at the Qing Dynasty, and you're like, oh my God, look at look how large this is. But there was no real centralized government. the The emperor only had so much authority over the distant areas. Mm. The Opium War shattered a lot of the faith in the government, and it there was a, a huge level of shame onto the people because they saw how belittled they were by you know the soldiers that were fighting their forces. I mean, it 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 utterly destroyed them. You you, you talk about the, you know, the opium dens and the addiction rate amongst all these, uh, you know, the commoners. A lot of these were soldiers who just, you know, they gave up all hope when they saw what happened. And yes, they stopped working when, you know, it was terrible. Um, It was uh, probably the first major punch at the Qing Dynasty, which, you know, if you're looking at this like a boxing match, it was uh, the first one, you know, shake the Qing Dynasty's knees, and then the Second Opium War really put him down, and then I'd say the Taiping Rebellion made sure he wasn't getting up.
1: Well, I mean, I think we covered uh, most of the episode. It's, it's, it was a big one, folks, and it's, like I said, it's a lot of information. I've still got a lot of it muddled in my head in terms of specific battles or ships or, you know, you brought in a lot of names there. But, uh, yeah, this, this was definitely Britain's first assault, so to speak. Yeah. Which, uh, exaggerated or not, I think it's fair to say they kind of had the upper hand at that point.
0: Uh, they were lucky that the Qing Dynasty did not treat it seriously when they should have. Uh, they took way too long. Because, in, in all honesty, you know, despite the technological uh, advantage the British had, particularly with their naval vessels, this shouldn't have gone the way it, it did. Um, the, the Qing military could have easily stopped a lot of this. Uh, Britain wasn't throwing its full might, you know, they were only throwing a few ships. And a lot of these troops, you know, were already boggled down with uh, suppressing a revolt in India as well, the Sepoy uh, Rebellion. Because uh, India wasn't happy either, and, you know, go figure, they were <laughs> not treated very well by the British Empire, <laughs> particularly during this time period.
1: Yeah, But all boiled down, do you think from China's part it was more lack of prioritizing thinking that dealing with the internal rebellions was more important or do you think it was more ignorance to the fact of maybe this requires a little more attention maybe it's going to be a bit more of a struggle than we think it is
0: oh it's a a lot of variables but like you just said um looking towards its own problems that were going on within was an ongoing issue uh they could never sleep at night with the amount of rebellions that were going on when the British began attacking, you know, the people that were aware were officials in the areas. When they would send word back to the emperor, they were too terrified to tell the emperor the truth. So, of course, the government wasn't going to act accordingly because the government, the emperor, had no real idea. He was being fed complete lies about uh, how bad the situation was. I mean, they, I didn't put most of it in the episode, but some of the some of the things that court officials were saying were just hilarious. They would say things like, oh, yeah, we... Uh, we shot and sank ten British warships uh, at this battle over here, and then they they fled. Uh, there was maybe a few British warships. They came, destroyed all the forts, and just left because it wasn't a you know priority area. It's it's kind of embarrassing. But
1: uh, well, considering how we saw, the Chinese Empire treated people that quote unquote did everything right, like Lin. Uh, I can understand them not wanting to deliver bad news to the emperor, cause it might not have gone too well for them. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, uh, you know, I'll just mention here, since we only have like a few more minutes or so. Uh, I used a lot of footage in this episode uh, from a movie called The Opium War, which was made in nineteen ninety seven. Um, I growing up never even knew this film existed. I only came, you know, came upon it because it actually is downloadable on YouTube, apparently. And not even uh, starring
1: Jason Statham.
0: No. No, or The Rock, yeah. Dwayne Johnson could have been in it. He would have made a good emperor. That, the Gong Emperor being Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I don't think that would hurt any feathers. <laughs> but,
1: we, we we should push for a remake. I yeah. think.
0: But uh, I I released uh, last week. I don't know when this will be premiering. But I released a film review because I you know I wanted to talk about how I how I thought the film was because it was a it was a product between a British company and a Chinese company with a Chinese director and. You know, they they didn't do too bad of a job. They wanted to show both sides, and they did look at, you know, there was corrupt Qing officials involved in this, and there was absolutely corrupt merchants, very specifically the main character in the movie, who's actually, he is a real person, but he, for some reason, they kind of embodied him as three separate people in history into one to try and show how, like, the British merchants were really the uh, horrible smugglers than we really think they are and how it really did cause the war. The only thing I would say about the movie is a bit long, bit on the boring side as far as the dialogue and the battles are very short, which I find very surprising because the f- they filmed at the actual scenes of the war, you know, and they still have a lot of these fortifications. They remain there to this day. You can go visit them. And they look awesome and they're used in other films. And I'm like, what? They could have used so they could have used that so much more and shown much better battles. Uh, it's a little sad, I found. Well, yeah.
1: It it is a historical film.
0: Yeah, if, and if, you, if you
1: get the remake with Dwayne Johnson, there'll be there'll be more fire. Don't worry. Yeah.
0: So uh, shout out to Dwayne Johnson. Look into uh, <laughs> the first Don't Be a film. <laughs> oh God, I'm so sorry if anyone from China is watching this. They're gonna kill me. <laughs> And I apologize again for my mispronunciation of territories, areas within China and or names. I am trying my best. I do not speak uh, the language.
1: Let's not forget long English words.
0: Uh, Yeah. yeah. Oh, and uh, just for the record, if anybody saw my most famous episode on this channel, which is on the Battle of Midway, I'll say it again, as I've said a hundred times, I am a little bit dyslexic and I refer to some... B-25s as B-52s, and I have received up to this point, I think, 200 comments about that. I get it. I made a mistake, and I apologize.
1: <laughs> Somebody drank too many B-52s in college. Yeah. But.
0: That was disgusting. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I think we pretty much covered it all. Uh, hopefully, the next episode we will see where it goes in the second opium war, and uh, we'll have some things to talk about then.
0: Yeah. Spoiler: there's a second one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And, uh, it's, uh, it's worse. Yeah. Oh, it's more confusing, too. I'll say that up front. I'm going to be saying a lot more areas, because this... Wow, if you look at the map, and I really... I tried my best to find a great map. Instead, I had to construct my own to just show where all the battles are. Oh, my God. It is a nightmare to coordinate. And, uh, we're going to be introduced to some notable characters. A certain Mongolian prince, who... (laughs) unfortunately kind of gets the same treatment as Lin Zexu in which he's blamed for a lot of the failures and uh, it's going to be fun and yes there will be more talks about uh, Qing cannons yeah
1: can't wait so uh, we'll this, see you next time and uh, go China
0: I'm, I'm rooting uh, for the Qing dynasty in this one I, uh, I'll give them 50 to 50 odds but uh, yeah this has been the Pacific War Channel's discussion, we'll call it for now. And until next time, over and out.